Be Your Best You, the Passionate to Purpose podcast with David Delaney. Good morning and thank you for joining us this morning. You're very, very welcome to this episode of Be Your Best You. This morning we talk about mental health. A lot of you will know Christy Bannon, my guest this morning, from his work on stage with the pantomime group in Port Leash, where he would have played a lot of characters over the years and entertained audiences. This morning, Christy talks to us in depth and very openly about mental health and his journey over the last number of years. And we're very, very grateful to Christy for joining us and, and speaking with us. Just to let you know, there may be some triggers in the conversation and we have included some links to supports that are available to you in the bio of the podcast. So please do, if you are listening and you feel you need to reach out, just visit the bio section where you'll see those links. So this morning, Christy Bannon from Port Leash talks to us about mental health. Christy, good morning and thanks for joining us here this morning. Thank you, David. Nice to be chatting to you. No problem at all. Christy Bannon. Christy, you are probably more known in Port Leash for your theatre work and people will know you through the years gracing the stage in many guises uh, on panto um you know oh, very very <laughs> tell us tell us a little bit about yourself busy um tell us about the background well um i'm 46 years old this august coming i'm married with three children uh i i'm a prison officer although i'm just I, i'm out of work injured at the moment uh, I've been, I'm born and reared in Port Leash. My family would have always been, uh, and my extended family would have been known for being members of the the um, amateur dramatic societies, the district arts society, going back through the years, and the pantomime group. And I kind of, I suppose, I had been uh, uh, one of the characters in the panto then for the last, uh, I, there was no show this year. The year before, I couldn't do a show, but for 21 years previous to that, in a row, I had played one of the parts on stage, and I loved it. Yeah. And where, where did that come from, Christy? Like, did you follow, did you see that growing up and say, I want to do this, or was it, was it a natural progression for you? Yeah, or It was, it was, it, it was kind of a natural progression. Like, um, I didn't even realise at the time, I didn't realise until years afterwards, but the first panto in town was in 1954. And it was Dick Whittington and his cat. And the title role was played by my grand-aunt, Julia Dooley. Um, and then the dame was my grandfather, Henry Bannon. Yeah. And other cousins then were on stage as well. And that kind of progressed. My father would have been in the shows. He was supposedly a, a wonderful baritone that didn't matter where you were, you got your note from him. Um, and my, my parents met backstage in Ross Gray in 1972, uh, when they were doing Viva Mexico with Ross Gray Musical Society. And I kind of, like, I suppose the, I was eight and a half when the first panto of the current um, panto group started. And I was kind of just backstage and I'd help, you know, it was a much cheaper affair blowing up stuff and that. So we made all the explosions and I was always backstage. And eventually, you know, I kind of looked forward to that week every year. And then I was backstage as a teenager and as an adult and eventually was dragged kicking and screaming onto the stage. I really didn't want to go on. I just wanted to be in the chorus, 
to maybe, you know, be there with a few girls because I was painfully shy. And I got put in um, the role of Buttons in Cinderella and I had exactly uh, one third of the script when you went back and counted the lines. So right. I into the deep end and I never came out of it since. Okay, so how important is something that, that's come up in, in discussions um, with, with different people that we're talking to on the podcast about, um, I suppose, our norm. Our norm has changed so much. You mentioned that there was no panto this year. How important is something like theatre? Like when we look at theatre and we look right across the board, we look at Broadway, we look at the West End, we look, they have all been shut. You see, Andrew Lloyd Webber has gone on there and he's been doing um, you know, weekly things, playing the piano to his fans and stuff like that. How important is the likes, and you know, not just on a local scale, but you know, how important is it to have something like theatre as an outlet for you know things like mental health, things like you know, how how important is it? I mean, it's it's a it's a way of expression for people. It's a way for people to come out of shells. It's a way to interact as you know something uh, completely uh, unrealistic and to just let all of your emotions out on stage. It's a way to engage with, with public. Um, it's, there's a, a camaraderie when you're rehearsing all the way through it. There's a nervousness before you go on stage. And then there's that burst of energy you get from an audience when you're out in front of them. And for me, I've always viewed it as a way of, uh, it would charge my batteries for, you know, the over winter and then that, week at a show look at i'm i'm on the bipolar spectrum i have a condition called cyclotymia and then recently i would have found out that i score very highly for attention deficit disorder so that's why i was darting around like a squirrel for all those years and not able to concentrate um and you know i would have the ups and downs and if the up that came along with the week of a show or the performance um came along with and up in my uh, uh, my mental state at the time, there would be a huge crash. But I didn't mind it because that up filled my heart, my soul, everything with so much energy. And it got me through. And like it would get me through until, let's say, the middle of the year, it, it, the last week of April, first week of May, when I would go away for two weeks cycling with Cycle Against Suicide. And it was out telling people your story and opening up and filling your batteries again. And I just, and I always say to people, look at, you know, fill your batteries. And that was, and that's where I see, you know, this, people are, the first lockdown, they were very proactive. There was Zoom bingo and all sorts of things. And people were watching films. They were logging into Netflix via Zoom and watching them together and stuff and all sorts of stuff. And then we got, then, you know, we were in lockdown around Christmas and you were all there in family and getting ready and Santa Claus and everyone was busy. But now, you know, we've come through the dark months and it's only now as spring is starting to come and the, the ground is heating up and, you know, little flowers are starting to appear, all the daffodils are coming late and stuff that we are getting um, our own batteries to start to come alive again. And where we have that opportunity with the arts, it's been gone in this last lockdown. And people are finding it tough. I've, I personally found it tough, you know, and I, there was, you know, I, you know, I had dark days uh, and I do, I get dark days anyway. Um, but just because I would talk about them, 
I would find it easier. People would see, you know, hey, you're not around. You haven't been on Facebook. And I know social media can play into a negative side for people's mental health. But it's it has played an awful, um, it's played a, a, a huge role in our lives during lockdown. And it's had negative and positive. And I feel that if we could, if you could just view the positives and find stuff like the arts and ways to keep busy, because people are missing it. They're, me they're missing expression. They're missing emotions. Um, they're, they're missing touch. And like yeah. when you're sitting in an audience, you can practically touch the performers. But that's gone for us now at the minute. And where, where do you think this is going to go? I mean, you mentioned like, you know, it, it's an outlet recharging batteries. Where is that particular outlet? You know, we all know where it is at the moment. What are your thoughts, Christy, on where it's going to go? Uh, I'm an optimist, I suppose. And I would hope that vaccines would work and that people would realise that vaccines are working since 1798 with Edward Jenner and would take a vaccine. Now, I won't force it on them yet. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I would hope that we can get a vaccine and life can get back to normal. But there is going to be some hesitancy, I see, from people who want to get close again. So if, if you can't get close, if you can't get into a stage, um, we're going to have to find ways of, you know, engaging with audiences in a manner that is less expensive, less intrusive. Um, like putting on, a, putting on a show in a theatre is very expensive. And so you don't pay for it unless you've got bums on seats. And when you have to leave big spaces between bums and you've only got a small theatre, you're going to have to think outside the box. And so if we're going to have open air theatre, if we're going to have different types of performance. Uh, so I think creative people are going to have to get more creative. Okay. Because you mentioned the cycle against suicide. Um, a lot of people would know you. You mentioned, again, social media. And that's certainly where I see a lot of the work that you do. Tell me, tell me about that and the part that that particular cause, um, the cycle against suicide. Tell me how that uh, pans out for, for you. And where, where it's, it's okay, like. Don't hold your breath. This could be a long sentence. Um, I would have suffered from um, depression and maybe a bit on the bipolar spectrum from when I was 16 and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't go and do it because there was such a stigma around mental health. And eventually I think I was maybe 19 or 20 and my mother begged me as a Christmas present to go and see the doctor. And so I sat down and I can remember saying that I was the most reasoned young person she'd ever met when it came to speaking about mental health and stuff. And, and I'd explained how I could cope with the lows and I enjoyed the highs and stuff. And she wanted me to take lithium and I refused. Uh, I said, look, I'm not taking medication. I can, I'm happy the way I am and I'm staying that way. Um, and so I wanted to go and she says, oh, no, you're not finished yet. You have to, you know, I have to refer you to see a psychologist now. So I was sent to see a psychologist and I can remember going in and uh, just saying the bare essentials I needed to say to be diagnosed with stress. And I came out then into a waiting room that had been empty when I was going in, but was full. And there was a young girl my age, um, a very pretty blonde girl, sitting straight across from me in the room as I walked out the door. And it was a room, it was all sort of large windows, low windowsills. And of course, all I could see was glass everywhere. And I had a panic attack. I couldn't get out. And I was pawing along the windows to get out and away. 
because I was so ashamed of being in there in front of people and in front of, you know, a peer of my own. So I buried it for years and would have used, you know, out partying and alcohol and stuff too much. Um, and then I kind of grew up and I got married. Um, and, you know, Claudia would have noticed that I was having ups and downs. And she said, look, at you, you know, you need to go and get help. And I kept putting it off. And then I started to go cycling with a few friends. And we happened to see an ad on the prison website about cycling and suicide. And we said, we'll go to that. You never know. We might even get a couple of days off to go. Better still, they might pay us to go if we were really lucky. <laughs> None of that happened. But we went anyway. And I can remember the first day being there and uh, talking to a guy who was a, an ex-Marine. And so he had seen, he was in the football stadium, uh, you know, outside Mogadishu, when, around that film, Black Hawk Down. So he'd seen real action. And I asked him, what's going on inside at dinner time? And he said, ah, they're just talking about feelings and shite. I'm going for a pint, you coming? And I said, no, but I hung around just watching. And then the, that was on, a, let's say, a Tuesday. That Friday, we, we drove all the way down to Killarney to meet the cycle again. And Finbar O'Sullivan was, or no, Finbar Walsh, sorry, not Finbar O'Sullivan's reportage. Finbar Walsh, he was father, the father of David Walsh, um, who had, um, Jesus, is that the name? I could be having a block. But he, the Live Life Foundation, this young man was dying of cancer and he wanted to stay alive. And he saw so many young people taking their lives. And I happened to go into the hall and I noticed this was an ordinary guy who was just telling his story to try and help other people. And then I met him out cycling later that morning and we knew a few people together. I had a great chat with him, cycled into Tralee with him. And so then there was another talk at dinner time, and I was kind of listening and it was ordinary people telling their stories. And the next day we were cycling all the way up into Limerick and I heard a girl speak about having an inoperable brain tumour. But her and her husband weren't dwelling on the, you know, the, the morbidity of it. They were um, focusing, focusing on creating good memories for her to take with her wherever she went and for him to always have. Um, and they were just ordinary people telling their stories. And then the following day, we were all the way up to Tume in Galway. And I, you know, I'd heard other people on the bikes telling me their stories. And then I heard a guy... Um, uh, look him up actually um he does a ted talk uh bob rob carley and he tells a story about how you're lovely you're lovable and you're loved and how he'd lost his wife you know his his, his childhood sweetheart and but you know life had turned all the way around again and he remarried and you know made something beautiful out of it in the end i won't ruin the story but i can remember going home in the in the van that evening with the other lads, prison officers, who never show weakness, never speak about, you know, mental health or feelings or anything like that. It's, a, it's the ultra macho environment. Um, and, you know, I had already blurted out to one of them earlier that day that I suffered with depression. And he, oh, and then I, I kind of closed the van and, and disappeared. But on the way home, I was just got into my head, I'm going to get help. And I can remember coming into the house here, going up the stairs to Claudia, and she was putting clothes away into the hot press. And well, how'd you get on? She said, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to get help. And she's like, what? No, how'd you get on today? Said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to get help. And I've been at me for a couple of years, um, but I've decided now I'm, I'm going to go and get help. You know, I've, I've been suffering with depression and stuff. It's not fair nobody else. I'm going for help. And it was that. It was just understanding that I wasn't the only one. That there was loads of other ordinary people out there who were going through the same stuff 
And so since then, I kind of, of course, I jumped in the deep end. Um, not long after it, they were going to be coming through Port Leash the following year. And uh, I got a job then all of a sudden as kind of looking after the Port Leash end of it. And I stood up one night, um, there had been a week-long novena. And Tuesday night was um, uh, for, it was in memory of people and it was my father's anniversary. So I was at Mass with my mother and everybody else. And then Wednesday night was, you know, for um, the blessing of the sick. And of course, my mother was there and I was to go down and get my head blessed. You know, that had to be done. Um, and I would have, Father Paddy was there and I would have spoken to Paddy on many occasions and had a pint with him like we were friends. And um, I would have, Paddy would have known uh, about my, you know, suffers with depression and stuff. And he, you know, I would have been chatting with him and then he happened to say at Mass, at Mass on Saturday night, I think it was, is for families who've been bereaved for suicide. And of course, I went home that evening and I just picked up the phone and said, listen, Paddy, can I, can I say a few words at that Mass? And he said, yeah, fire away. I said, look, what have I got? He says, you know, three or four minutes at the end of Mass after communion, I'll slot you in there. So I went along. It was midnight Mass. Um, and I had a kind of a speech written out. I don't know where it came from, somewhere inside me, and I just went up. So Claudia was at home here with the kids. She couldn't go. And so my mother was there beside me for support. And uh, I stood up, and I can remember saying, hello. Well, the Monsignor introduced me. He said, look, you all know Christy from the Pantomime Entertainment. But here he's going to speak about something that's a little closer to our subject this evening. And I stood up and said, hello, mostly know me, Christy Bannon. Uh, 40 whatever years old, born and raised in Port Leash, married with three children, and I suffer from depression. And there was an audible gasp in the audience. And from that moment since, my life has completely changed because so many people come up to me. Like mass ended around 1am uh, or a little before it. And it was, uh, I think, 20 past two or 20 to three in the morning. And I was still in the chapel yard with people talking to me, hugging, crying, sharing their stories. And it's been constant since then. So I, I started writing a blog. I got more involved with Cycle Against Suicide. I became lead cycle marshal for the country. I would have gone around to schools and given talks and stuff. And I just find that um, letting people know they're not the only ones. It saved me. And it's allowed me to save a lot more people via phone calls and messages where they would reach out. Um, and I think if somebody else can learn from that and share their message, that they can save other people too. Short Question, I, I was just going to ask you there, Chrissy, what was the most important thing people need to know about mental health? And you kind of answered there, I think. Yeah, for me, not... it's that, you know, you're not on your own. Uh, uh, like, you see, it's been it's been normalized now that people don't talk about mental health because it's something you can't see. And if you can't see it, you can't quantify it. And I would is, explain, that, is that an Irish thing, Christy? Or is it where where is it a macho thing? Is it like is there a big where does that come from? Because we, we talk about everything else. We put our dinners on social media. We, yeah, we yeah. talk to our friends. What what is the stigma? Like, what do you think is the stigma? Why can't we say? And put our hands up and say, as a nation or as a person, I have, a, you know, I'm feeling down, or I need a bit of help. Why can't we do that? Look, there's there's a whole there's a whole load of reasons all playing in over the century, like uh, up until uh, I think it was in 1993, suicide was still a crime here. 
uh, in the past, you wouldn't be buried on hallowed ground if you took your life. It was a sin. And it was people who needed your help and you were turning away at their time of need. Um, you know, so it was like you could have had someone who was depressed or a bit manic and all of a sudden they were a witch and they're being burned at a stake, you know, in the Middle Ages. So all of that coming in and then with the modern treatment of medicines, you can see something, you can scan it, you can get an image, you know what it is, you take this tablet and then you're fine. But people had to think that, oh, you couldn't take tablets for mental health. Oh no, stay away from them. And the people telling them to stay away could be the very same fella who, if they, you know, had a hangover, banged their toe at the toll, would be eating paracetamol like Smarties. Um, and, and that kind of, that kind of vexed me. And I can remember doing a course I was doing a, a diploma course, which I, I'd never finished because I'd started getting treatment for the cyclotimia. And once that was all unmasked and I was getting help with depression, I found I couldn't concentrate. So I wasn't able to finish the assignments for the second year. I, so I had a certificate. I never finished my diploma, um, despite taking two years at it to try and go again. But anyway, uh, on that course, we were doing a module on depression and common mental health disorders. And we were talking about treatment and stuff. And I can remember a couple of people nearly trying to speak up against medication for mental health. And so they were all talking about, and then I just had enough and they said, whoa, stop, look at, I'm on antidepressants. And they, were, they all were kind of shocked. And I said, look at, if, if you saw somebody who'd broken their leg and were walking around outside and her leg was flopping around underneath them as they tried to stand on it, you'd say, stop, what the hell are you doing? get into the hospital, get that x-rayed, have it set, have a cast put on it, you know, walk around with a support, take painkillers, anti-inflammatories, all sorts of stuff. And then not only that, when it's healed, then you're going to physiotherapy to build it up again. And just because you can't see the injury, people ignore it. No, no, it's not there. And that stigma, because of that over the years, over the century, it takes generations to break down. And you were seen as weak or something if you spoke about it or were open about it, or if they thought, oh, oh, he suffers with his nerves, you know, that sort of thing. And like, I can remember a, a grand aunt of mine who had, who had heard me um, speaking at mass. And she said to me, oh, I heard you with Father Paddy at the time chatting away and, and do you suffer with your nerves? And I was going to correct her and explain everything that's going on. But instead I stopped and I said, yeah, I do. And that was her generation's way of you know, it was a catch-all phrase for it. But I think there's more understanding now. There's a, a, a lot more study and research gone into it. And slowly but surely, people are speaking out. And it's really because uh, of social media and fame and, you know, wanting to be like that pop star or whoever. Like we see with Brezzy. Brezzy opened up about his struggles, wrote a book. And now it's, it's really 90% of what he does is, you know, mental health advocacy. But is, is there a flip side to that, Christy? And I suppose even thinking yes. in terms of percentages, if, if we look at, you know, we had for Caroline Flack, the situation, a lot of that was attributed. We've had the recent thing with the, the, the guy on the horse. Like, if, if you were to divide it, if you were to put a percentage on, you know, how positive social media is versus how negative, would you be, would the needle point more towards negative in terms of mental health and people being isolated? Or would it be, would it be more positive in your experience? I mean, mental health is a, 
or not mental health, social media is a more sort of a, a magnified version of society. And so the good stuff is really, really good. And the bad stuff is horrifically bad. Um, and I can remember a, a girl in a school up, I think in Monaghan one time, I'd given a talk to um, all the different classes over a day. And uh, she came to me with a teacher and had a question. I wanted to know like that she wanted to come out and tell her story and you know, what should I do? And I kind of, I had to say, listen, before you do that, make sure you're okay first because what can happen and I'd, and I've seen it with other people who've been, you know, sort of youth ambassadors for, for this and where they've been picked on and bullied in the school because they spoke out about these things. And, and despite everybody knowing how, you know, how horrific it is and parents knowing how, how vulnerable children are and stuff and that, unfortunately there are children who have absolutely zero oversight on them by parents when it comes to social media and stuff. And, oh, my Johnny wouldn't do that. And then when, you, when you're able to show them exactly what they've been writing and stuff, and, and look at, it happens every so often where we see a child, a teenager, a young adult who are bullied because of what they've opened up about or what people find out about them. And instead they take their life. So like, it, it, you have to try and mitigate the bad and promote the good. And I think education is a huge part. We have to keep educating. And like children are being, taught this now in schools from a very early age and older groups, retired groups and stuff, they're being taught all about this and, you know, about the dangers of isolation and everything and they're on it. But there's a generation that was like, you know, pre-internet and has been raising kids and stuff and they're not, they're ignoring it. They're not dealing with it. Are they ignoring it, Christy, or are they not familiar with the potentials in case? Like, if you look at, at social media, because, like, our, our generation now are probably the last generation who grew into social media. Yes. The, the generation coming up now are growing up with devices. I mean, there's kids coming, you know, out of hospital, out of being born with tablets in their hands, frankly, to keep them quiet in, in the crib on the journey on the way home. Like, is, what's your thoughts on that? Um... Right, well, my, my idea is, is, and it might be popular, but there is an abdication on your obligations as a parent by an awful lot of people. And it's like, here, you take that. And now these parents are suffering themselves as well in a lot of cases. There may be substance abuse, you know, there may be um, socioeconomic problems. And as well as that, then you have people who are you know, having to pay for their lifestyle, the mortgage is very high, they're caught, you know, negative equity, and they're work, 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 and then they come home, and they're just exhausted and can't cope, and the child is given a tablet, and, and you know, there's a, and, like, where little Johnny is looking for attention, craving some attention, and not getting it, so being a bully, he has attention and stuff, and, you know, and, and it happens with girls as well. Like, I don't have to keep saying little Johnny. Um, you know, the little princess, they have very long pointy claws sometimes. And I think if, if like, parents were, um, if there was some way of, of, you know, having an audit on what the kids were doing 
and you know they were called in by you know a semi-state body or the schools and stuff and say okay your child has these social media profiles um have you been checking them and have you been monitoring them because do you, do you think Christy, that's a possibility sorry to go across there because if, if you look at the the capabilities or incapabilities as you see i mean we have Tusla, we have the mother and home the mother of mother and baby home investigations we have all these things that people are are critical of we should have had these checks in place I mean, that, that, that's a huge, that, that's a whole other hour's conversation. Oh, two hours, three hours. Like, do, do we have the adequate resources as it is now for supporting people with mental health um, questions? Do we have adequate supports that people can, you know, who, who do get to the step and say, look, I have an issue, help. I mean, you, you no, hear no. the horror stories of someone. No, else, answer, uh, no you don't. Okay. Okay. And why? Why is that? What? what because it's been the poor relation of of health services um, for generations right across the world. Uh, if you look at the per capita spend on, let's say, health in nations, and then you view the per capita spend of the health budget that goes on mental health, it's single figures. Single figures. Now, the last time, like one of the ways I explain to kids about how important mental health is, is I use a bicycle. And I would always say the back wheel of the bike is where you put in the power. And when you push down on that pedal, the chain pulls around, it pulls on the crank, you know, it puts all that force going around out through the spokes and up onto the rim and drives you forward. And if you push too hard, sometimes you can break a spoke. And if that spoke breaks and the, the wheel cut, you stop. Now you'll stop, you get off the bike and you're going to have to get it fixed. But your mental health is the front wheel and that steers where you're going. And you can get by with a broken spoke or two in a front wheel if you're not going too fast. The wheel will be buckled, you won't be very comfortable, it'll be a bit wobbly, but you'll get there. But if you push hard, if you're going hard down a hill or around a bend and that wheel decides to collapse, the fallout is catastrophic. And you have to look at health as, you know, physical and mental and emotional and look at everything. It's not that you can just say, this is the health budget. I mean, no, it should be looked at is in a holistic view. If people are happier, if people are more content in their lives, emotionally stronger, then they don't fall prey to a lot of other um diseases that are preventable they will have better lifestyles you know that you won't have so much problems with with drink and stuff stress causing heart attacks and all this stuff. that a lot of that would be reduced if only people would say okay we're going to have to re-evaluate how we spend our money on health so is it part of that requiring joe soap on the street to say put their hand up and say and reveal i have an issue like, is that important? Do we, do we need to actually get and try or try to get a true figure? I think, well, if you look at the Good Friday Agreement, uh, everybody had to take a step together for that. You know, the IRA had to decommission, um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the UDR and all this, they all had to decommission without knowing if the other ones had really done it. You had to take the word of uh, General de Chastelan, you know, um, different political parties had to make that jump together. And if you waited for evidence and all to work one at a time, it would have never been done. So I think with, with 
fixing this is it, it would require a major rethink it would require a huge overhaul of the entire health system and of the psyches of all the people involved and you see unfortunately politics works on winning elections and being popular and saying the right stuff and politicians make decisions only if it's going to more often than not only if it's going to benefit them and their party and staying in power you're not going to get somebody who's going to say okay well we're going to cut down the budget for this side of the health service and put more into here because in a generation's time it's going to reap reward or such rewards but then you're going to have the people saying well i can't get my operation for this or whatever and they will complain so you need buy-in from everybody and that's going to take a generation or two to change and it comes in education and example so more people and look at let's be fair about this you need brave people who are willing to stand up i've lost an awful lot of friends and i've been laughed at and abused because of speaking out but i don't care because it's all worthwhile if it saves just one person and i can remember being in the doctors not long after i'd given that talk um in the church and I was having, uh, the nurse was, was taking bloods or something. And she says, how are you? And she says, oh, I'm grand, I'm grand. She says, look, at you. you have to learn to go easy on yourself. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm grand, I'm not. She said, no, no, you have to go easy on yourself. You're doing an awful lot and you're helping a lot of people. And, and this was only in the, you know, weeks slash early months after that. And I said, well, what do you mean? She says, you're giving a lot of yourself. You're, you know, you've been opening up and helping people and telling these things. And, you know, that can be hard because you're dropping your own shield and you'll be hurt emotionally by it as well by some people. And I said, look, at it, it doesn't matter if it, if it, look at it, I said, if it helps just one person, then it's okay. And she said, well, look, at I can tell you for a fact, I know of two people it has helped immensely. I said, I was there with two of my friends and they've both spoken to me countless times about how that one night has helped them since so please go easy on yourself now for a bit because you've helped some people and so i've learned then over the years to step back a little bit when i'm not 100 myself you won't see me posting on facebook you won't see me putting out video blogs um but when i am you know when my well is full i can hand out water but when it's not i can't go to it I think that's something with the social media as well as people people have learned to program themselves that when they don't see someone every day on Facebook, they're like, what's wrong with you? Mm. But it's the wrong kind of question. It's the wrong kind of what's wrong with you. It's, it's a superficial um, thing. Christy, we're, we're coming up on time. One question I do want to ask you, and you mentioned at the start, is your battery's been charged, okay? So what's charging? You're, you're not on the stage at the moment. You're not you know, doing the, the thing you love, which is, is theatre. You're not, you're not out. What, what's charging your batteries uh, these days? Well, I'm, I'm not on stage. I'm not out against suicide. I'm not giving talks in schools. I'm not in work um, uh, for like coming up on three years in June, really. Um, and so what I have taken from this uh, for a year or well, for well over a year, I was um, at home 
but I was in pain and whatever else. And Claudia dragged me over and made me go on the school run in the morning and go for a walk. And then I would have to walk home so I would see people and get exercise and be outside. And then I would go to the school and pick up the kids and have them here. And for a while, I was just picking them up and dropping them to the childminder. And then when I was on reduced pay, we had to cut the childminder and I have them here. So I've taken time when I couldn't work and, you know, couldn't do everything else. And even when I was sore, I still spend time with the kids. And I, it's a, it's a privilege for me that is denied of so many people that I've been able to be at home and watch my kids grow and teach them stuff in school and show them things different than the teacher is showing them that is years more advanced than they should know and get in trouble. But, you know, I've been able to spend all the time with them. And even during lockdown, when, you know, other people were struggling for, for child minors and things and, you know, how to work and everything else, Claudia was a, a frontline worker and had to go. But I was at home here and I got to look after the kids. You know, I got to bring them out to play on the road and then bring them in to let someone else's family come out and play, you know, let them play inside, you know, go for walks, nature walks, show them how to, like I had been trying to dig the garden. It was killing me. So I got a, got a little tool in the middle. It was like a big rake. And I was able to just rake the top couple of inches of soil and plant peas and onions and stuff and show them how they were growing from seedlings all the way up, harvest them, eat them, explain where our food comes from, how we have to be more resourceful, less waste. And so I've turned, tried to turn negatives into a positive. Yeah, and bring it, bring it back to basics and yeah. show them. Okay. Christy, give me some parting words or give us some parting words. Okay, anyone listening in who, um, you know, may have thought, you know what, I, I'm, I'm feeling a bit bleh, I need to talk. Um, give, us, give us some advice uh, to anyone who might be tuning and listening to, to this conversation. How long have I? <laughs> I told you I could talk for... 1.5 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that won't be happening. Um, <laughs> but I have been through the darkest of dark days. I have been the guy who would get up out of the bed when my wife would be asleep and my kids were all asleep and to go walking with a rope trying to find a tree to hang myself from. And because I wanted a sore neck and not a sore arse, it needed to be a big, strong tree. Um, and so I'd gone through all that and I see it now and I'm on the far side and I, and I, can, I know that I have a 100% record of getting through the shit days. And so does everybody else who's listening. And if you can just realize that you are not the only one going through it. Currently, um, World Health Organization figures were a while back anyway, that every year, one in four people would go through a, a mental health issue. And over the course of your lifetime, that drops down to one in two. So if half of the population haven't bothered at some stage, isn't normal, what is? And to know that you're not abnormal and you're not on your own, just to know and speaks about it, search out information. There is help there. Like even here in Port Leash now at a minute, uh, there's a push on going to get um, an office open for SOSAD, Save Our Sons and Daughters. They have a phone line up and running for people from Leash to ring at the minute. They have three counsellors 
put aside solely to talk to people in the leash area who contact that number. We are looking to raise funds now to match funds that they have and open an office with counselling rooms, with services. Where I'm, I've been talking to politicians, county council members, there's, and it's not just me, there's a lot of people working in the background. I was contacted by somebody else. But if people, if anybody listening, and if you haven't listened yet and someone else is going to tell you, listen to what this fella says. I've been there. I've been through the, the mill. I've been so close on more than more occasions than I want to talk about to not having that tomorrow, to, to, you know, to ending it all stupidly and, you know, wasting what could be a beautiful life spending it with people. And if they could just realize they are not on their own. So many people are going through the exact same thing. If you're in a room and there's 10 people there, you know, there's, there's two or three other people there have been going through that. In the UK and Ireland, one in five people will suffer from depression or anxiety every year. And it's, it's not something that you should be ashamed of anymore because it's normal. And the only way to make it a normal that everyone speaks about is for you to, you know, listen to other people talking about it. Let your batteries be filled up by them speaking about it. And if your battery gets charged, let you speak about it too. And that will just keep passing on. Uh, I used to use a, an analogy of a little pond or a little stream and a leaf stuck under a, a, a twig or a branch and can't get loose to flow down the river. And that if you drop a pebble in, the pebble ripples out and it would shake that leaf. So if you, if every time somebody would drop a pebble and tell their story, it would keep rippling and shaking that leaf loose so that it can go on down. And so if you drop your pebbles, maybe someone else will get the strength to drop theirs too. If we all speak, tell our stories, the world will be a better place. Christy, you mentioned there someone, and I know there are people who you know, are going to agree with me when I say, you're lovely, you're lovable, and you're loved. Okay. And we'll drop in the, um, the, you mentioned a couple of supports there. Um, we'll drop those into the, uh, the, the conversation afterwards. Christy Bannon, thank you so much for joining us today. David, don't mind what to say about you. I think you're lovely. <laughs> God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs> and that's it for another week thanks for joining us this morning and do join us next time on be your best you have a good week Thank you.